to the Two Line Offside podcast, the podcast that brings together the stories of both the sports and the video games that we love in one place. A place where it doesn't matter if you're onside or offside, just as long as you're inside the lines. If today's the first time you found us, I'm so glad you're here. And if you're a recurring offsider, thanks for coming back. Now, I've done this in just about every episode so far, but if this is your first time listening to this pod, or this is your first time listening to the FIFA series, I'm going to strongly suggest that you go back to listen to episodes 1 and 2 of the FIFA series before you keep going with this one. Am I going to give you one of my patented, super-fast, blast-from-the-past recaps? Of course I am. But this episode will still make a lot more sense if you know the backstory. Let's start the fifth episode of the Two Line Offside podcast. Let's go offside! By now, if you've listened for any length of time, you'll know I gotta do it. This is the part of the pod where I let you know that I'm a pretty passionate person when it comes to sports and games. As such, There's a pretty good chance I'm going to swear during the course of this podcast. But, in this case, there's a catch with this particular podcast. See, I want you guys to be able to listen to this podcast with whoever you'd like. Your mom, your dad, your kids, your grandma, your dog. So, I'm going to beep the audio for those of you who like podcasts nice and squeaky clean. The catch, though, is that this sound isn't how we mark swears around here. Instead, I'm going to mark my curse words with two different, unique sounds that will somehow either relate to either each other or the theme of the episode. If you want to hear the answer to the what and why of the sounds from the this episode, you'll find those answers during the intermission section of the next pod, which I mark at the approximate halfway point between these two whistle sounds. Other than that, the only discretion warning I have for this pod is pretty much the same as it's been for all the other FIFA episodes. This podcast is a series about the organized crime tomfoolery of football's global superpower, an organization known as FIFA. If you don't want your kids savvy to organize crime, I should have more content for them soon. Okay, Offsiders, we've come to that time in the show yet again. It's time for the super sly, super fast, rapid recap. Let's go! So last time I introduced you to four of FIFA's probably most important, but also sly son in our impending scandal. The first, then-executive director Sepp Blatter, had just brokered a deal along with his boss, head of FIFA, Zhao Havelange, with Adidas to be the exclusive right holders of all things FIFA merch and had made the world-changing sports marketing move of convincing soft drink giant Coca-Cola to become a sponsor, pulling FIFA out of a tight financial crunch. The third in our list of high-flying lowlifers 
was an American soccer mom turned USA soccer giant, Chuck Blazer, who convinced our final character, also a low-budget soccer mom turned swindling theft, Jack Warner, into someone who had successfully run for the president of one of FIFA's most powerful soccer block of nations, CONCACAF. Jack Warner, a man who we established even before his rise to to CONCACAF presidency, had no issue using his position of power to skim money off the top just for himself. This being a habit which is and is about to become much more prevalent with a lot of different people in this FIFA crime story. And that's where I left you last time on Glee. Just kidding. I definitely don't own the rights to that IP. That's the recap though, kids. Time to go offside. So last time, via this clip, take us even more international than the good old US of A and the Caribbean. Not only are we going to go to some fairly hot and tropical places, but I'm also going to put on my sports law skills. I was promised I was going to take you somewhere hot and tropical, and that's definitely true. But before we do that, one of the super hot topics of this episode, <laughs> see what I did there, is in fact not a person at all, but a thing. A thing which by today's standards seems pretty obvious to you and I, but wasn't always the case. That thing was, drumroll please, the television. And in this case, I'm not exactly saying the TV itself was a big deal for football. More specifically though, the big deal as it relates to football was just how important and lucrative those TV contracts would be that would eventually allow an entire world to lay its eyes on some of the world's greatest footballers without being anywhere near the stadium. Now, I actually spoke a little bit earlier in this series about Jao Havelange and ILS. Fast forward a bunch, and we get to a guy by the name of Jao Havelange as the president of FIFA, who ushers in the concept of modern-day sports marketing with the help of this executive director, an impending bad guy, Joseph Sepp Blatter, who brokered a deal with Adidas, which would then form a company within itself known as ILS, or International Sports and Leisure, to control all the marketing rights in terms of merchandising and television contracts for FIFA. You know, while also paying Zhao Havelange a secret bribe on the side so they wouldn't be challenged for the marketing rights. And how he gave up the TV contracts for FIFA for bribes on top of whatever else they paid. Without really knowing how much of those contracts would eventually be worth. does this mean that then-President Zhao Havelange has now handed over the exclusive TV rights to Adidas and its media company, shoot-off of ILS, which stands for International Sports and Leisure, which literally it created to deal almost entirely with its new massive relationship with FIFA. This 
also means here comes some more foreshadowing, guys. That Havalange, around the same time, was taking secret kickbacks from Adidas and ILS in exchange for not allowing anyone to compete for those marketing rights, including the television rights. Though I couldn't find exact numbers, numbers are pretty hard to come by when powerful folks specifically do not want you to find them. However, an article penned by NBC's Alex Johnson, which marked Zhao's death in 2016 at nothing less than 100 years old, can somebody please tell me why it's always the fucking swindling, super rich aristocrats that end up living to be a hundred? Because it's kind of annoying. Anyways, it's estimated in that article that he took approximately 40 million dollars in bribes and kickbacks. A lot of those coming from ILS, which again, according to Ken Binsinger, who wrote that book Red Card, became almost the entire business model for the marketing company to bribe for its contracts. Hi guys, this is future editing Mel here. I thought it might be important for me to point out at this point that bribes in business are not illegal everywhere in the world. Including, if the source I found is correct, it's not exactly illegal to bribe somebody in Brazil for civil business purposes. It's really only illegal to bribe somebody if they're a public official or if they're involved in a project that would be of or for the public benefit. That's not to say that I'm condoning what Zhao Havalange did, because it was still kind of sketchy. But we have to remember that business law is different everywhere in the world. And what's our norm is not necessarily everybody else's norm. What's going to be a problem for Zhao, however, is that when you're running an international company like FIFA, it's really important that you understand international laws and laws as they pertain to the countries that you're dealing with. Because just because what he did may or may not have been legal in his native Brazil, doesn't mean it was legal where and when he did it for FIFA. Anyways, I just wanted to point that out to be fair to everybody involved. Now, you guys wouldn't know this otherwise, but when I write these scripts, I tend to give these sections titles. It mostly helps me keep things organized in my head, and they usually work alongside of the outlines that I also write for these episodes. <coughs> Thanks, Aaron. Anyways, the reason I'm telling you this is because I specifically titled this section, quote, The Value of a Ball. Why did I call it that? And why is that important? Well, it's because, like a lot of things in, our, in this society that we've created for ourselves, both balls and their sports have value. Now, for a lot of people like me, the value of a ball is far more important than the costs of jerseys, tickets to a game, or even the contract of a specific player. For people like me, the value of sports also lies in the feelings it creates. To hear that famous call of Tom Cheeks during the Blue Jays World Series run,
them all, Joe. You'll never hit a bigger home run in your life. The feeling of Jose Bautista's bat flip. Watching my Maple Leafs finally make it past the first round of the playoffs. Hugging my dad, jumping and screaming around the house like a bunch of little kids because our team has finally done, th done something fantastic. Say what you want about sports, but I'll forever make this argument. That sports has an incredible ability to bring people together. And few things in life give fully grown adults the permission to experience something with equal measures of enthusiasm as they did when they were kids. Want to paint your face for the game and color coordinate your outfits with your buddies while you jam out to your team's signature goal song? Go for it. As much as I'd love to leave our value of sports section at that, I can't do that. The truth is, particularly now, now that FIFA's initial model of asking non-sports organizations like Coca-Cola to sponsor events is so prolific. Yeah, you heard that right. The model for asking organizations like Coke to sponsor hockey or football teams is in fact largely started by FIFA and its deal with Adidas. Anyways, the point is that both sports organizations as a whole and their players all now have the freedom to seek all sports, all forms of sports sponsorship from all sorts of places. And that, my friends, has a dollar value. Take my favorite sport, which, shockingly, based on this podcast, isn't actually football. It's hockey. One of hockey's most prolific players when it comes to sponsorships is none other than all-time Canadian favorite, Sidney Crosby. That's right, Sid the Kid has inked a lot of endorsement deals. In fact, according to a fantastic article written by Dan Robinson of Sportsnet, a much younger Sidney Crosby got a deal with PepsiCo, the mass distributor of Gatorade, for $30,000 over three years when he was just 16. Which also means that at the time that he was getting this deal, he was actually making two times what current Gatorade hockey sponsorships in Todd Bertuzzi and Jose Theodore were at the time. On top of that Gatorade contract, Sid also had contracts with Sherwood, the hockey stick making company, Tim Hortons, and a pretty big deal with Reebok, which is a company which was eventually absorbed by our good friends at Adidas. That deal with Reebok was worth approximately $1.4 million. And that doesn't include any of the smaller companies that he's done deals with. To get that incredibly marketable face and personality associated with the brands of his choosing. Now, this isn't me trying to harp on Sid. In fact, I honestly fall into the category of people who really like Sidney Crosby. I mean, who doesn't really? How could I not love the man who scored what is otherwise known in Canada as the Golden Goal on February 28th of 2010 to win the gold medal in overtime? against America during the 2010 Vancouver Olympics. Now, like I said, this isn't about me putting Sidney Crosby on blast about his many lucrative sponsorship deals. 
Do I think we should probably pay professional athletes and their organizations considerably less than we do? Yep, totally. But what I really want to talk about in this case is the insane amount of money that swirls around not just those individual athletes, but rather the league they belong to. Since we're on the FIFA train, and since they like to at least give the impression that they're transparent about their finances now, I put that in air quotes for the record, let's start with FIFA. According to data that FIFA most recently posted, this is what we know. The first thing I noticed was that they're kind of weird in that FIFA seems to denote all of its financial information in four-year chunks. I mean, I guess this kind of makes sense because FIFA, like the Olympics, occurs every four years. It still seems kind of odd to me that any organization would talk in financial terms outside of anything but single years, or even single fiscal years. Either way though, that's how FIFA does it, so let's go with that. According to FIFA's information, between 2019 through 2022, they made a record-breaking amount of money at 7.6 billion US dollars. Money that they seem to insist they want to invest, quote, right back into football. According again to FIFA's own numbers, they expect to make 11 billion US dollars between the period of 2023 and 2026. According to the annual report they literally post on their own website, of that 11 billion that it, they expect to make in the next quadrennial, FIFA expects to reinvest 10 billion of those dollars back into football. FIFA has also put at the end of its summary of its financial report, quote, the resounding success of the FIFA World Cup in 2022 in Qatar has been key to the organization's ability to fulfill its mission in relation to our member associations and the world of football, despite the multiple challenge we face during the past cycle, not least being the COVID-19 pandemic. Is it probably true that an organization making $7.6 billion in the middle of a global pandemic means counting it a success? Sure, but does an organization that considers itself a non-profit making billions of dollars really seem legit to you? However, the only thing I can really compare it to are some of the other pro leagues that we have to look at. So let's do that now and not throw stones quite yet. So where better to go next on our quest to look at the obscene numbers that come with some of the major sport leagues than straight to America's game. Good old baseball in the major leagues. According to an article that I found by the fine people at Forbes, they say that according to Major League Baseball's own numbers, they actually set records for their gross revenue. They seem to keep their exact profit and those numbers pretty close to their chest. But on that gross revenue record, when it comes to the 2022 season, MLB states that they made between 10.8 and 10.9 billion dollars in gross revenue which shattered their previous record, set in 2019, at $10.7 The tone of both the MLB and that Forbes article that I mentioned seem to be surprised by this massive number, given that Major League Baseball, like everyone else, was just emerging from the effects of the pandemic and were expected a much slower ascent towards such massive numbers. 
Honestly, though, it kind of makes perfect sense to me. I'm not sure about you guys, but coming out of 2020, I was at peak looking for something to practice some pretty intense escapism. If baseball was there to provide it, I was totally on board. So on board, I might even be able to admit publicly that at the time, I totally would have watched the Yankees if the opportunity presented itself. Oh. To folks who know who I am, they know that that's shocking. But that was also what we in the biz call an excellent segue. Because when it comes to looking at the astronomical wealth of teams in Major League Baseball, there is no better example than those classic Bronx Bombers, the New York Yankees. According to an article by Christine Goh of Statsica.com, during the 2022 season, the New York Yankees spent a whopping $262 million U.S. million on player expenses. When it comes to specific individuals, I probably don't have to tell you that these extremely large numbers are proportionally high. Who should we pick on in this case? Well, there's honestly at least one player in Major League Baseball that I love to rag on. None other than the Yanks' current poster child, Aaron Judge. Now, I want to make it clear, even though I'm picking on him to make this point, I respect what Aaron Judge does. I do. I also think he should be paid for what he does. I do believe in paying professional athletes. What I'm not so sure about is that we should really be paying guys like Aaron Judge, whose major skill set is being able to hit baseballs hundreds of feet and catch them when the opportunity presents itself You're out. as much as we do. What does Aaron Judge do to make his money? According to Buster Onley of ESPN, the current deal that Aaron Judge has with the Yankees has him playing for nine years at 360 million US dollars. For those of you keeping track, that means Aaron Judge makes 40 million dollars a year. 40 million dollars! Teachers where I live make an average of $34,064 per year. Paramedics make $64,992 per year. And journalists make an average of $21,489 per year. I guess the point I'm trying to make with this section is that with all of these professions that I just listed, that involves people who have skills which are of benefit to the society that we've built. Although I'll be the first to tell you that I love pro sports and I love watching guys like Aaron Judge do their thing, I'm also 100% willing to admit that people like Aaron Judge definitely do things to make an impact in their community with their money, so I'm not refuting that. I just think it also goes back to the thing I asked you in the beginning, which is, what is the value of a ball? Now, I promised in the last episode that I was going to take you somewhere a little bit more tropical, and I'm totally going to make good on that promise, but before I do that, I think I hear a whistle. If you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, that you know that the middle portion of this podcast is a portion that I call intermission. In this section of the podcast, I like to throw in some random facts that I found while researching. Now, again, just like all the other times, 
If this portion of the podcast is part you'd like to skip, I, again, am going to give you a timestamp. If you want to skip this part, you can jump to here. 30.35 If you're still here, though, thanks times a thousand for being here. Let's get right to it. Let's get into intermission. Now, since you've decided to stick around, I'm going to give you a bit of a preview. Post-intermission, we're headed to South America, and more specifically, the largest nation in South America, Brazil. I thought for this intermission, we'd get a little bit more acquainted with that section of the world. So, like I said, let's go to Brazil. Brazil is the largest nation in South America. To be more specific, that's 8,515,767 square kilometers. Does that sound big? It is. But you can also bet that I double-checked that in a few places. We take our research pretty serious here, kids. According to the fine folks at World Atlas, the languages that Brazil has breaks down like this. The official language for both government and business in Brazil is Portuguese, which is spoken by approximately 204 million people, or 97% of the population. The second most spoken language in Brazil is German, which is spoken by about 1.9% of the population. If that seems a little strange to you, you're not alone. I was also a little bit confused, but the fine dudes at World Atlas explained that that large contingent of German folks relocated to Brazil in the early 1940s to escape World War II and has since maintained use of the language in some of areas. If you've spent any time watching some of the History Network, like I have, you will know that fortunately or unfortunately, some of those people who have escaped to Brazil are in fact Nazis, both modern day and not. Uh, but to be honest, I'm sure not all of them are. Some of them are also probably just normal German folk. The last 1.9% of our language pie, for those of you who were keeping track, because you're crazy motherfuckers, <laughs> consists of the dwindling use of indigenous languages in Brazil. As has unfortunately been the case in a lot of colonialized nations, these native languages in Brazil predate colonialization, and many of them have been lost. There are a few that remain prominent in Brazil today, and World Atlas actually lists a few, but to be honest, I don't really want to butcher the names of these languages. If you want to check it out for yourself, as always, I'll leave my sources in the show notes. Okay, so one more thing I wanted to talk about about Brazil, and then we'll hop on to the secret censorship sounds from the last episode. One of the first things that comes to my mind when I think of Brazil is that absolutely massive statue of Jesus. Let's jump into that for a sec. So the statue in question is actually called Christ the Redeemer, and it's in fact one of the seven wonders of the modern world. It was commissioned by the Roman Catholic Archdiocese in 1922 to stand atop the... 704 meter summit of the now famous peak of Mount 
Conovoco. Part of the reason they wanted to put it on top of the mountain is that it would allow it to be seen from basically anywhere in Rio de Janeiro where it's located. The statue itself is 89 feet 30 meters tall and has a wingspan from fingertip to fingertip of 92 feet or 28 meters which means that if we put it to the test, it would definitely probably beat LeBron James in a dunk contest. From what I can find, it was constructed and planned by engineer Heitor da Silva Costa, artist Carlos Oswald, and the details were sculpted by Paul Ledowski. You know, for a lot of human history, I generally haven't been in favor of, honestly, most of the projects undertaken by the Roman Catholic Church. In this case, though, I think they created something pretty cool. Alright, now it's that time in the intermission where I let you in on what mystery censorship sounds from the last episode were. So last episode, we talked about two of FIFA's high-class gentlemen, that was sarcasm, Chuck Blazer and Jack Warner. As a result, I decided to use two sounds that would kind of represent both of those guys. The first sound was this. I decided to use this sound to try to represent the New York Stock Exchange, since Chuck Blazer famously made his home and office in Trump Tower of NYC. Interestingly, I wasn't able to use the actual sound of the NYC Stock Exchange because the actual sound of that bell is copywritten. Go figure. The rich mother get you anywhere. The second sound was pretty subtle, but it was this. That lovely subtle sound is the sound of the Scarlet Ibbets, a bird, which is the official bird of Trinidad and Tobago, home of Jack Warner. Now that you're all caught up on the mystery sounds, I think it's time to we that we get to the last section of the podcast. So let's go, offsiders. Let's go to Brazil. Remember when I told you about the collection of block nations within FIFA? You know, like CONCACAF, not CAFPAL, like Abby on the NCIS, which has included nations in North America and the Caribbean? Well, South America has a similar set of block nations. This block is called, and I'm gonna try really hard not to mess up this title, Confederación Sudamericana de Football, or Common Bowl for short. It contains nations like Argentina, Brazil, Bolivia, Chile, Colombia, and Ecuador, to name a few. And yes, that was me reading from an alphabetized list of member nations. But I bet you're saying, wait Mel, I thought way back in episode 1, you told us that football was invented by some old-timey lawyer named Ebenezer Morley in England. How did it get all the way to South America? And how did it raise some of football's most prolific players, like Messi? Well, we're actually here to talk about a totally different dude. But I love it when you guys ask me questions like this. So, here's the Coles Notes version. So, for better or worse, it is, or rather was once true, that there was a time when the sun really did never set on the British Empire. 
From what I could find, it looks like football first made its way to Argentina when British sailors started their own football club in Buenos Aires, known as the Buenos Aires FC, in 1867. There are several other stories about how it made its way to various other countries in South America, but I really don't have time to focus on those at the moment. I really want to introduce you to yet another impressive, but also eventually sketchy businessman that made some serious dough on the FIFA phenomenon. What I will say is that from what I heard from a few places, it's the belief of a lot of folks smarter than me that part of the reason football spread so prolifically around South America has a lot to do with wealth disparity. Unlike a lot of sports, Football mostly only requires a ball and a person's feet. Makes it pretty accessible even if you don't have a lot of money to go around. Speaking of making money though, in South America, I've been itching you to introduce us to our next character. So let's do it. Who's the man I've been plugging for almost the entire episode? Well his name is Jose Halwa. And did I absolutely go to the website pronounce.com to figure out how to say that? Yes, I absolutely did. Shout out to two of my favorite podcasters who run the podcast Morbid and put me onto this website. They didn't pay me that to say that, and we honestly don't know each other. It's just an awesome true crime podcast, and I wanted to say it. I'll throw their link in the show notes if you're interested. Anyways, back to Halwa. So according to our FIFA scandal bible, red card by Ken Binsinger, young Jose, who began going by J later on in his journalistic career, which is pronounced Jota in his native Brazilian, began his career in the late 1950s, early 1960s as a journalist in Brazil by doing play-by-play of second division Brazilian games for radio broadcasts. As Ben Singer points out, the business of soccer and its broadcast were pretty simple back then. In fact, reading about it kind of reminds me of courses I took in school, where it was often broken down to us how local grassroots sports contests are still carried out here today. You know, how your beer league games work out. Basically, how it worked, both for Jota during his time and place, and your dad's beer league is like this. Teams sold tickets, and stadiums would sometimes rent space on local billboards to promote the game, although probably not for your dad's beer league. Both the teams and the stadiums would come to some kind of percentage agreement as to the amount that each might make based on ticket sales. Now, for Jota in the 1960s in Brazil, the other thing that was different for a journalist, and honestly kind of intense when I think about it, was that when it came to him getting paid, reporters like him not only had to do the halftime analysis, player interviews, game play-by-play, but they also had to sell the advertisements that would be eventually would result in them getting paid. Considering it was what seems to me like the wild west of journalism in 1960s and 70s Brazil, a place where guys like Jota Holloway were literally doing the job of what in today's world of media were likely to be done by at least four other people, 
Jota became a pretty good entrepreneur. Over time, Holloway's tireless work ethic led him to eventually become a fairly high-ranking journalist in Brazil, working for TV Globa, one of Brazil's most important broadcasters in the 1970s. But working for the man is hard. When Jota was fired from TV Globa for supporting a journalism strike that occurred there, I guess 1970s and 80s Brazil was not into workers' unions and bullshit like that, uh, sounds gross. When he was fired for supporting this, this journalism strike, he decided in 1980 to go out on his own by buying a, a company of his own, uh, which I'm going to again try really hard not to butcher, but I don't speak any fucking Portuguese, so <laughs> I'll do my best. So he bought Traffic Assortia e Comunicados, or Traffic for short. This being a small company that sold advertising on the side of buses. But Mel, you're telling me. You're telling the story of FIFA where the where's the white-collar gangster soccer themed stuff? Don't worry, I got you. By the time Jota Holloway bought traffic, he'd been doing the football journalist thing for a pretty long time. And as someone who loves sports with a passion, that won't go out, I could totally see why our guy wouldn't want to give up that quite so easy. So here's what went down. A few years into selling simple bus advertising, Jota decides that he wants to take advantage of the fact that even though Brazil's teams are pretty chronically in debt and poorly organized, the nation itself was crazy for football. So he decides to take a bit of a chance. In 1982, Halwa expanded Traffic's portfolio by inking a deal with the Brazilian Football Association, or CBE for short, which apparently makes sense in Portuguese. CBE being the organization who, among other things, organized games which involved Brazil's ever-popular national team, the Brazilian team being better known by its fan, fan base as the Celson. For those of you who are wondering, that translates from Brazilian Portuguese to The Selection. Which is honestly such a bad name for a football team, I love it. How cocky do you have to be to refer to your football team simply as The Selection? Anyway, back at traffic, Jota now has the rights to sell advertisements in every stadium that Los Celsona players play games within. Homeboy is a little bent on world domination, it seems though, so he keeps going. He does similar deals with volleyball teams in Brazil, volleyball being a big deal in Brazil also. In 1986, Halwa met the president of Comerbol, the South American bloc of nations for FIFA, Nicolas Leones. I wish I had a good joke, a good joke for that one. That's also an annoyingly large acronym, but I'm so sorry, I do not have a joke for that. Anyway, at this meeting, Nicholas Leones gave Traffic the in to ask about advertising for La Copa Americana. What the f*** is La Copa, you ask? Well, 
besides being something that is about to make Jota Hallway a ton of money, it's also the qualifying event for teams in South America and the rest of Common Bowl to make it to even participate in the World Cup. Sports loves a good qualifying event. It gives us more of that sports dopamine sports nerds like me live for. Well, that and actually physically running too, but that's a different podcast. Now, for reasons that I'm not going to go into here, Copa Americana was trash from a marketing perspective before traffic took control of the tournament for an easy 1.7 million. With time and experience, Hawa built the tournament into a force that after many years was finally making money rather than hemorrhaging it. As I stated earlier, as time went on, organizing and selling advertising for La Coupa made Jota Hallway a very wealthy man in a set of now soccer-crazed nations in South America. Possibly one of the few things they might thank colonial Europe for. That said, just like his fellow countryman in Jao Havelange, the former FIFA president, it looks like as far back as the 1990s, Jota was giving kickback payments to Nicolas Leoes, president of FIFA South America's voting bloc, for which I have no good joke again. He did this, of course, to main traffic's basic monopoly over the broadcasting and advertising rights of La Coupa. This being not only a violation of FIFA's pretty clear ethics code, seriously, your four-year-old could interpret this ethics code, but it's also a little shady as business deals go, especially when you consider that at its peak, Traffic sold the broadcasting rights to La Coupa to 199 countries. Upon being caught regarding this, Halwa claimed that it was simply a part of business in football. Traffic's fall as the top dog is about to occur, and its ultimate role in bringing an end to FIFA, at least as we knew it then, is about to occur. But those final connections in this wild tale is far too long for this now marathon of a podcast. If we're going to polish off the first series of the Two Line Offside podcast, I have two more people for you to meet. And while we're at it, let's go somewhere I'd wager is even hotter than Brazil. That's the only hint you're going to get, folks. Thanks so much for hanging out here for our longest podcast to date. One last thing before I go, before I let you free. I hope you'll humor me in dedicating this podcast to an old training partner and friend from high school. My friend Laura officially crossed off a childhood dream a few weeks back by finishing the Ironman World Championship in Kona, Hawaii. For those of you who are not as in love with triathlon as we are, an Ironman is a 2.4 mile swim. 112 mile bike and a 26.2 mile run in open ocean where everyone is kicking you by the way is where that swim occurs hey! basically what I'm saying is it takes a really long time and a lot of pain tolerance and a, and a no joke iron will to accomplish this race and most of the real kilometers really only occur on long lonely roads long before the the race of her life even starts. Congrats, Laura. I'm endlessly proud of you. And that bike looked fantastic.
hope to join you one day in at least having finished a marathon sometime soon. There. I said it in public, so I have to make it happen now, right? Okay. Seriously, I have to end this podcast now. Run fast, run hard, offsiders. And remember, it doesn't matter if you're onside or offside, just as long as you're inside the lines. See you next time, guys. The Two Line Offside Podcast is a sound shifter production, meaning that it's written, edited, researched, and mixed by yours truly. Shout out to Alex Action of Pixabay.com for the intro and outro of this podcast. And you know, as always, if you think I went offside, or if you think I stayed onside, you can email me offside.podcast12 at gmail.com. Also, guys, that information that I gave you about Brazil having very little rules about bribery in its constitutional system, don't take that as legal advice. I literally took one law class in university. I do not have the authority to give legal advice. Don't take legal advice from me. Or really any podcast, for that matter. That's not a good idea. Go see a lawyer if you need to do stuff. Later, guys.